1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me just read to you again, beginning with verse 12. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, and that word there means, in the Living Bible, lazy. It says lazy. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. It's interesting how he's almost going to repeat himself in the verse we're going to be studying tonight. He says, see that none render evil for evil to any man, but ever follow that which is good, not just for yourself but among yourselves and to all men. So other people can tell that you're following after that which is good. Rejoice evermore, so you're to be happy. Pray without ceasing, you're to be prayerful. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So you're not only happy, but you're to be thankful. Quench not the Spirit. In other words, walk in the Spirit, obey the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Despise not the Word, despise not preaching. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, so don't be uh, gullible, be uh, introspecting, checking things out. Abstain from all appearance from evil. Uh, the Living Bible says keep away from every kind of evil. Keep away from it. And that talks about initiative on our part. Not that God's going to drag us away from it. Not that God's going to beat us away from it but that we have to make a quality decision. And you know, more and more as, I, as I, I'm studying on this, knowing the truth and this good things for God's people, the Lord keeps bringing up to me the fact that God does not make us robots, but gives us opportunity every day to make choices of what we'll do and who we'll serve and who we'll follow after. Now, that's what he did in the Old Testament, constantly out in the wilderness. And they kept making bad decisions. When they got into the land, they made bad decisions. So they were taken out into captivity and then brought back in the land when they obeyed. And then they'd disobey and go out again. And in every case, God did not make them do anything. He gave them a choice. Do this and you'll be blessed. Do that and you'll be judged. And so the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that you and I, by choice, by our own choice, in obedience and following after the Lord, are to abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, the first verse of the Scripture that came to my mind when I read that verse was Genesis, the fourth chapter, where it talks about the sons of Adam and Eve. Verses 1 through 9. Let me just read it to you quickly. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstling of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. 
And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a good question that we have to ask when we come to a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. Am I my brother's keeper? And after all, he's responsible for himself. Why am I responsible for my brother? And a lot of people today say, well, if they have trouble with what I do, that's their problem. But the Bible keeps telling us that it's not their problem, it's our problem. That we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to do only those things that will help our neighbor and not become a hindrance or a stumbling block to our neighbor. Now, the word abstain from, from vine, it says it means to hold oneself away from or to keep oneself away from. Uh, it's interesting here when it says abstain, it doesn't mean God will keep us away from or God will cause us to keep ourselves from something. Abstain from all. Now, you notice that little word all? All appearance. It may even be very, very small. And some people say, well, that's so insignificant. It's the little things that are the most dangerous. In the submarine, big deal. I mean, it's only a pinhole in the side of the sub. We were talking about the other night. They said that a sub cannot stand, cannot survive any bigger hole than the size of a quarter, than the size of a huge atomic sub. Can you imagine? any bigger than that, and there's no chance for them to get the water out and to get back up to the surface. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. There is nothing that's insignificant when it comes to sin as far as God is concerned, or even the appearance of sin in our life. So he says that we're to abstain from all appearance. That means all kinds or all forms or all natures of evil. I hope you know that appearances are very important. Remember me telling you about the deacon that was brought before the board and uh, told that he was going to have to give up the deaconship because uh, he was. He, they found out he was a, a drinking man and he didn't know why they thought that. And they said, well, Miss Sister such and such saw your wheelbarrow in front of the bar last Saturday. And he said, because my wheelbarrow was in front of the bar, you think that I was drinking? He said, I was doing a job and I left it there because I had to go down the street to do some work and then I came back and picked up the wheelbarrow and took it on home. They said, well, as far as we're concerned, you must have been in the bar because your wheelbarrow was there. So the next morning, that sister who had made that charge to the deacon found his wheelbarrow on her front porch when she got up in the morning. But the appearance of evil, someone says you don't ever, you don't ever want to tie your shoelaces in a watermelon patch. Because someone looking at you might think you're down there trying to steal a watermelon out of the watermelon patch. So we're talking about appearances here, things that you know are perfectly all right as far as you're concerned, but other people perceive it wrongly. We don't dare let this bring us into bondage, but we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to be able to observe and check these things and find out it isn't important what I'm doing as much as what other people perceive that I am doing, or they may think I'm do that I'm doing, because it will determine our influence for Christ. I've had people say to me, I don't have any respect for such and such as a Christian at all. Why? Well, I, they were doing such and such. I said, what makes you say that? Well, I saw such and such and such. Said, well, I would talk to that person later. They said, that wasn't what I was doing at all. I said, but they perceived it. They thought that's what you did. And so they feel that you compromise, and so they don't have any confidence in you. I said, I think you really need to go and talk to them and share with them and let them know that what they perceived was not what you were doing. 
And yet, there's probably very few in this world today, if they took a fine-tooth comb and a magnifying glass and went through our lives, they wouldn't find some flaw there. You see, they're sitting there just waiting for us as believers to do something so that they can destroy our testimony. That's why it says in, in 1 Peter, live in such a way that when they do say these things about you, that they will be ashamed because others will know that your life is such that those things are not true about you. When Daniel was ruling in Babylon, right under the king, he was over all the wise men in the country. They searched out his life with a fine-tooth comb, and what did they come up with? What the answer was it? They, they said, we can't find anything wrong with his life. It's, I mean, we're going to have to get him in his religion. And so that's when they went to the king and said, let's make a rule that nobody can bow down to anybody else or pray to anyone else except the king for the next 30 days. Well, then they knew they had him because they knew he wouldn't compromise. He'd go right back and keep on doing what he was doing. He ended up in the lion's den. God had to give the lion's lockjaw for a 24-hour period until they took Daniel out, and then he fed them when they were just about ready to starve through the other men in. In order to even try to apply this verse without legalism, we have to, first of all, have good judgment. What makes common sense? And at the same time, what will make me to be aware of what other people are thinking, what other people are saying when they're around me. You have to, first of all, be able to develop a very tender conscience toward the Lord. You see, it does matter what other people think about us. I've had people say to me, well, you know, I don't have anything wrong with, it doesn't bother me to do thus and such and thus and such. And I said, well, that can be very possible. You could also have a seared conscience, or you could have a hardened conscience. Or you could have a, a sense of, I couldn't care less what other people think, which is pride on your part. It could actually be a form of rebellion on your part. Some people say, well, you mean to say you never drink any alcoholic beverages? I get along fine without them. But I'll tell you, I found people who, if they didn't get into trouble, their children did if they do drink. It's an appearance of evil. And then you have to have some self-knowledge, too. It's not just a case of, can I do it? The question is, what will it do to me? I want to tell you something. There are certain areas, because of my background, that I don't dare delve into. Now, some people who have never been involved in some of the things I was involved in before I was a Christian, they can probably look at something and say, oh, yeah. But it can stir up things that I've asked the Lord to deliver me from completely, and I don't want to even give an invitation into that area anymore. I just say, this is not for me. Well, if it's not for me, then it certainly shouldn't be for my children. But again, you see, I can't come to you and say, here's, I've had people say, well, write down things that I should or shouldn't do. I say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you legalism. That makes it easy. Well, I've got six things here I can't do, and the rest of the things I can do. No, no, no. The thing is that we are to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, you show me things that will cause me to be a stumbling block to someone else. Things that will even appear that I'm not walking where I ought to be. Because you see, you and I might do right things, but we may even do wrong things, and some people will think it's all right. The scripture says to the pure, all things are what? Pure. To the defiled, all things are defiled. You and I can make a very innocent statement and someone who has a defiled mind will immediately pick it up and try to use it for some other thing. I'm trying to remember the exact verse one time 
where the scripture verse had the word gay in it. Well, some fellow said, and they said, oh, so there's gays in the, in the Bible. And I thought to the defiled or to the impure or the wicked, that all things are wicked. They've always got a dirty twist to it, an evil twist to it. And so a lot of times things is going to be how people perceive. You and I can, can be liberal in our giving, but we have to know that our liberal giving is led by the Spirit of God. We've talked about that before. It isn't how much I give, but it's how much I give in obedience to the Lord. You know, we can, uh, should I call it uh, prodigality, where the prodigal went out and he threw away all of his money on wine, women, and song. Hey, everybody, the drinks are on me, this sort of thing, you know. And there are a lot of people that, that can go out on the street and just hand out $100 bills. I want to tell you something, if they can do that, that's sin if they're a Christian for doing that. If they don't stop and look at each person they're about ready to give to, Lord, do you want this person to have $100? I might be doing more harm to that guy than I'm doing good by giving him $100. That's why it isn't indiscriminate giving. It's giving in the Spirit. And if I give to someone that doesn't deserve it, you know, I've had people in the past that have criticized me when people have come into the church and asked for money. But I'm always saying, Lord, make me sensitive in my spirit. And I, there have been times when the Lord just said, no. I remember some years ago, a man and a woman with a little baby, old clothes, dirty clothes, they were dirty themselves, came in, felt no freedom whatsoever. And I had some come up and cost me in the church because I didn't give them some money. I said, I just did not feel free. They're supposed to do it. It was only a little later than that we found out that there was a couple with a little child that parked a very expensive car down the road and they were towing an old car and they were going from church to church and were collecting literally hundreds of dollars a day going from church to church, getting offerings from the church to meet their needs. You see, just because they walk in the door does not mean that God is telling me to give to them. You say, boy, that's awfully hard. That's why we have to ask the Lord for direction in everything we do. So there's indiscriminate giving, and then that, that's not good. And then, of course, there's the other type where people say, well, I'm very conservative. Others look at them and say they're just plain tightwads. They're just plain tightwads. They're cheap. I had a friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine came to our home just recently, and, and he, the wife was very upset because a man in the community where they lived had said to him, you're just cheap. Well, the guy is very, very close with his finances. I mean, frugal is another word. But, but you see, the other side of that now is they won't admit it. I mean, you'll ad people will admit, well, I've committed adultery or I've, I've stolen and so forth. But very few people will admit to covetousness. Unless God slaps them in the back of the head of the two before and says, you give it or else. They'll hold back with a tithe. Let's see, I made $204. Okay, that's $20.04 exactly. Okay. You know, that, that enters into covetousness and legalism. You know, whenever I find myself starting to say, well, Lord, how much, how much do I owe you? Or how much should I give this week? I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. And I just sit down and say, Lord, I'm going to give above and beyond it. I'm going to break that thing. It's not going to, that's not going to enter into my life. You know, most people will not admit covetousness in their life. Not very many Christians will go around saying, Lord, you know exactly what's in my savings account, what's in my checking account, you know exactly where I am. Now, if there's anything you want me to give and anything you want me to do, if there's someone I can minister to, you show me. 
How many Christians you know that get up every morning and say that to the Lord? I'm, I'm available, Lord, whatever you want me to do. And yet, how many of these same Christians know the Bible says unequivocally, with the same measure that you give, it shall be given unto you? Eyedropper to eyedropper, shovel to shovel, scoop to scoop, truckload to truckload, however you do it. Now, let me tell you something that Christians need to understand. If you only have $4 in your pocket, God is not going to tell you to get your credit card out and give $1,000. See, that's just poor economics, and God is not a poor economic person. He, he knows exactly what your potential is. He says you're not to give what you don't have. What do we do when we sell property? What do we do when we do... And a lot of questions came up about what we do with our finances in situations like that. And there have been some people that think, well, whatever I get in from salary, but that isn't what the Scripture says. All your increase, if it's from sale of stock, if it's from the sale of property, if it's from sale, anything that comes to you, the first fruit of that goes back to the Lord. You say, well, that's, that's just legalism. No, that's the Word. And when you do it, God says He'll honor you. And of course, another aspect of covetousness is when people say, this is my tithe. I got news for you. None of it's ours. None of it. If I got a million dollars tomorrow as a gift, a million dollars of that belongs to God, and I'm responsible as a steward. He says that we're stewards, and if you're a steward, you own nothing. It's all His. Lord, where and how would you have me to spend this? Well, you know, if, if a man is making $100 a week and he returns $10 a week to the Lord, he's got $90 to live on. But if a man's making $30,000 a month or $50,000 a month and he gives $5,000 a month, now he's got $45,000 to live on. Do you really believe that God wants him to be able to say, well, the 45, after the, that $45,000 is mine to have and do what I want to with. I don't believe that. That's why they're in the New Testament giving. One person gave all that they had to the Lord. See, God says, if you're faithful over little, I'll make you faithful over much. But if you're not faithful over little, what? I'll make you faithful over much. That's why he says when men come into leadership, try them, test them on a long-term basis, give them job after job, and if they're faithful, 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 he says then, they, when they come into leadership, then I'm going to bless them. The principle is always the same here. And then the Lord wants us to be very, very cheerful around people, but you know sometimes when some people are cheerful, I've had people say, you know, it's just a joy to be around them, they're so cheerful. And then other people look at them and say, well, yeah, but you know that's flirtatiousness or the, the they're just trying to, you know, make an impact and influence people. And, and I think, how do you win? You can't win. But you've got to be careful that when you do those things, that Jesus Christ is being manifested in your friendliness. It's a very fine line between flirting and being friendly. And if you're very conscientious, you'll find some people that will say, well, that's legalism. No, it's not legalism if it's not based upon do and don't for righteousness. Rather, what can I do to please the Lord? The other aspect is independence and a contempt for appearances. Some say that liberty is the absence of being controlled by any law. That's liberty. Not being restricted by any law. I want to tell you something. That's not liberty. That's licentiousness. 
The Scriptures call that, I believe, licentiousness. Let me give you a good example. Let's say that there's this 360-foot passenger ship out on the ocean. And this huge passenger ship is out there, just everybody's enjoying themselves. And finally the ship says, you know, I'm sick and tired of that little rudder back there. Every time I want to do something, that rudder bothers me. And so it says, get rid of that rudder so I can be free. How many of you would want to be on that ship when the rudder is gone? Well, I'm free. Now I can do whatever I want to do. Do you know what I'm saying? Freedom is not the absence of law. It's having something to keep you on a set course. The freedom of being on a set course. People say, you know, I wish that I could be free from the laws. How many would want to drive if you knew there were some people in the city who were free from the laws of the land? I mean, to them, a red light was a green light, and a green light was a red light. Whenever other people say, I want my own freedom, then everybody else is in bondage because you have no way of knowing what you can or cannot do. And that's why God's laws tells us that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves, where we would not want to do anything that would harm them any more than we would want them to do something that would harm us. And so liberty is not doing my own thing. Liberty is considering our brother or sister. It says, avoid the appearance, all appearance of evil. And that means every form of evil, any kind of evil practice. Lenski says we should avoid everything that looks wicked to those who happen to see it, although it may not be wicked at all. We should avoid everything that looks wicked to those that happen to see it, although it may not be wicked at all. Always lean to the side of virtue. Romans, the 14th chapter, beginning with the uh, 12th verse, I won't read all of it. It says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And the King James is letting him see you do something that he thinks is wrong. Isn't that interesting? What he thinks is wrong, not what you think is wrong. Uh, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, thou walk, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Even though you know what you're doing is right, he says, don't let your good be evil spoken of by those who see you doing it. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. Underline that if you haven't underlined it. For meat destroy not the work of God. And, and the King James says, don't undo the work of God for a chunk of meat. And Paul is talking there about the sacrifices that were made back in that day by the heathen. They had prime and choice meat in the animals that they slew, and you could buy them for just a small percentage of what you could buy commercial meat for on the market. And the Christian said, hey, let's go get the prime meat for less money and we can give the rest of the Lord's work and missions and whatever. And Paul says, no, if it's going to cause a weaker brother to stumble by going and getting it, don't eat that meat. Because there's some, we know, he says, that, that all they're doing is worshiping demons, and there's nothing wrong with the meat. 
But if someone has come out of that religion and they know that that animal is a sacred animal and it still affects them, by the way, if they have not had complete deliverance, it could definitely affect them. Those spirits would still be there. Religious spirits would still be there. He says, don't destroy the kingdom of God for a chunk of meat. Even though you know it's right, you know it's good, and your intentions are good, and your purposes afterward are good, abstain from all appearance of that kind of evil. Verse 22, hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he allows. Now, if you want to read some powerful words in that portion, just read it out of the Living Bible. I won't read it to you tonight, but read it down through the third verse of the 15th chapter in the Living Bible and just meditate on that. It has so much to do with what it's saying here in 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter. Someone said, you know, in cold weather like we're beginning to experience tonight, you can close all the doors and all the windows, but the cold still comes in, doesn't it? And there's only way you can keep the cold out. Is that to start a fire on the inside. And we can try to close all these doors that we're talking about, but we have to have the Holy Spirit in charge inside our lives so that even when we do things and try to be as careful as we can, that people will sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that will keep our spirits warm no matter what they say or how they respond to us. And at the same time, be really terrified and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but be terrified of allowing things to come into our lives that will cause us to be a stumbling block to someone else. Someone, someone wrote some years ago that turtle doves are so terrified of hawks that if they land on the ground and see a feather of a hawk there, they'll be frightened and fly away. Isn't that amazing? They recognize a feather from a hawk lying on the ground and they'll fly away from it. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be marvelous if God's people were so sensitive being a stumbling block or allowing anything to appear evil in their lives, that when they came close to something that even looked like it was going to look like it, that they'd flee away from it. Wouldn't that be marvelous? And the trouble is, today, the world is looking at the church and they're saying, I don't see any difference. They're looking at the difference in the homes as far as divorces are concerned. They say, I'm not seeing any difference. They're going into the courts where, quote, Christian couples are getting divorces, and they say, I don't even see a difference. In fact, some cases I see more viciousness there than I see on the part of non-believers. They're going to the jobs and they're saying, I don't see a difference. I see Christians stealing and cheating and lying and, and telling dirty stories and, and or laughing when other people tell dirty stories and so forth. I don't see any difference. Scripture says we're to abstain, get away from, withhold yourself, pull away from the very appearance of evil. And in so doing, others will be able to see Jesus Christ in us and have a hunger. Now, if you and I live in such a way that even though they talk about us and say things that are bad, that they know that they're ashamed because they know that we live differently from that. When the chips are down and when the troubles really come, they'll come back if we abstain from the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're talking about it's good for God's people to uphold biblical standards when relating to others. We've been talking about different aspects of good things for God's people, and one of the good things for God's people is to uphold biblical principles or standards when relating to other people. Jesus says our conduct is going to be one of the things that indicate to those around us that there's something different about us that they'll look at us and many times they'll ask, why are you so different? And it'll give you an opportunity to share with them the goodness of the Lord in your life. 
and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, if you don't have people asking anything and asking you any questions of why you're different, maybe you're not that different. And you ought to ask the Lord why they're not asking. But if they are asking, the next problem is, can you give them the answer? That's one of the things we talked about last Sunday morning, to be ready to give an answer to them. But in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, the first verses of this chapter are powerful in areas of relating and upholding biblical standards when relating to others. Paul had just prayed with them and asked that the Lord would establish their hearts unblameable in holiness before him when the Lord came again, that we'd be prepared to meet him in the air. And then he says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. And it's so interesting to see how Paul the apostle approached people. There were those not too long ago who talked about submission, where if you have somebody in spiritual authority over you, whatever they tell you to do, you have to do it, almost have to do it. They're just in complete control of you. But I see the Apostle Paul who had all the authority that anyone could possibly have, and he doesn't say, furthermore, I order you, furthermore, I command you, but he realized that he has to answer to the Lord, and he says, furthermore, then we beseech, and another word that would be synonymous with beseech, he says, we're request of you, brethren. We're requesting of you. This is why I say I can talk to people, and I can ask Christians to do things, and I can share with them what the Word says, but I can't make you do anything. You must be of a submissive spirit to do those things that you're told to do. Now, I want you to know that I have counseled people, and still to this day counsel people, and I can't make them do what I tell them to do. But I tell you, I've come to the age where if they don't do what I tell them to do, I'm not about to counsel them any further. I'm not going to waste time with them. If they come and want counsel and are not willing to receive that counsel, I've got better things to do. I'm too busy. But Paul says, I just request of you and I exhort or admonish you by the Lord Jesus that as, and by the way, I'm glad he used that authority as his backup figure. Many times I speak to different ones here in this body. I say, well, now I'm talking to you as your pastor. And you see, a pastor is an office ministry, an office that Jesus has placed within the church. Apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. And so Paul says, I exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. He said, now what I'm getting ready to tell you, I've already told you before, and I'm going to tell you again. I'm amazed sometimes when people said, oh, you, you already said that, you already preached that in the past, Pastor. And I'll see them sit hour upon hour upon hour and listen to the same TV advertisements over and over again. Who has good ideas? Ford. People immediately respond to that. And if I were to sing little ditties to you, you'd immediately know what they are. But the minute someone says something two or three times, they, oh, you know, he's getting in a rut. That's all he ever talks about anymore. But Paul says, now I've already told you this, but line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. I'm just going to keep laying it on you. And again, I appreciate what one pastor I heard about one time. He kept preaching the same sermon Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And finally the deacon said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to keep preaching this until you start doing it. And then I'll go on to something else. But he said, I've already told you this, so I'm going to reiterate it to you again, how you ought to walk and to please God so that you would abound more and more. When you walk pleasing to the Lord in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, you will abound. 
for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Now he says there was a time when I stated these as commands from the Lord. Do this, do that, do the other things. Now I'm coming and I'm admonishing you and I'm exhorting you. I'm trying to get you to do what you were told to do. He had already commended them in the beginning of this book, by the way, the church of Thessalonica. He commended them over and over again. But then he comes down to where there's some correction. And you know, there's a lesson for parents to learn here. A lot of times parents tend to do nothing but criticize and criticize and criticize and criticize their children till they just break their spirit. But the principle is to encourage them and to build them up and let them know all the wonderful things they do. You know, children need to have some self-confidence and self-image of being able to do things with some sense of success. And when your children do something and they do it fairly well, compliment them for it. And then, after you're through complimenting them, tell them how proud you are of them and so on and so forth, and say, let me show you one other thing here now, honey. The next time you do it, look, you can do this too. Try it this way and see if this is easier. And you use these different principles to establish in them more responsibility and growth. But he didn't just cut them down and criticize them. He said, now in the past I, I commanded you, and now I'm just exhorting you to do these things. For this is the will of God, even your what? Sanctification. You're setting apart. Being set apart. Now, if anyone ever asks you what the will of God is, you can tell them the will of God is my sanctification. And I told you not too long ago, there are a lot of churches today that won't even use that word. It's almost a dirty word anymore because people think that it talks about bondage. Many people think it talks about being legalistic. Sanctification has nothing to do with bondage and legalism. It has to do with holiness. And without holiness, no man shall what? See the Lord. That's right. No man will see the Lord without holiness. And he's not talking about the holiness that's been imparted to us. He's talking about a change of life. He's talking about where people can tell the difference between us and the world. He said, this is the will of God, even your setting apart or your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, that's that same word, pornea, that I talked about a lot in when I was teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce. Only here, as it's used in what we call the broad sense. Remember the illustration that I gave you of the fruit basket? You can say there is a basket of fruit. That's the broadest sense. In that basket are grapes and apples and oranges and bananas and peaches and strawberries and plums and all the rest of these things. But you say, that's a basket of fruit, and that, that covers it. Or you could get very specific and say, now there is a basket, and in that basket are oranges, apples, bananas, plums, strawberries, grapes, and so on and so forth, and so on and so forth, and define them individually. Then, then the word pornea, in that case, as it's used sometimes, is what we call the very precise or narrow use of the word. Here he's saying, avoid all forms of sexual sin. So he, what he's giving here is a comparison. If you're involved in, in sexual sin, you are not sanctified. If you're sanctified, you will not be involved in sexual sins. Any kind of immorality, anything that's contrary to the will of God. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, and that you should abstain from or get away from or avoid or keep away from completely any form of fornication. God talks for purity and holiness in the life of the believer. He says we're to avoid everything that even implies sexual immorality. That's why Paul says whatsoever things are true and honest and pure and just and lovely, of good report, with virtue and with praise, think on these things. And I want to ask you something. When you listen to your music, 
Can you honestly hold that verse up and say, I'm doing this for the glory of God? When you listen to, to programs, can you hold that verse in front of you and say, I'm going to enjoy this now in the light of this scripture verse? You say, well, now that's old-fashioned. No, that's Bible. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. You should avoid anything that has the hint of the taste of the smell of the suggestion of sexual sins, immorality in any way. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, this is an interesting verse. I had never seen this exactly like this before. As I got into the Greek, Lenski brings out some very unique things here. He's talking now about possessing or acquiring a partner for life. Let me read it to you the way Lenski put it, that every one of you should know how to acquire his partner in sanctification and honor. The Greek word can actually, in actually saying this, you should acquire, know how to acquire his partner in sanctification and honor. He's talking about finding a wife or a husband. When you go out to acquire a wife or a husband, he says, don't do it like the Gentiles do it. See, there are two problems in Thessalonica. One of them was sexual immorality was rampant. Secondly, dishonesty in business. They would cheat and lie and steal and everything else. They would do anything they could to gain an advantage over someone else. And so the first thing he's talking about here is don't go by the standard of the world. When you get ready to possess someone as a partner for life, make sure that that possession is performed with sanctification and honor. It means that you recognize that you're, you're looking forward to a holy relationship in the days ahead. How many of you know that if it starts off in an unholy way, it's not going to end up very holy either? And today our young people are being told there's no need to wait. We're supposed to enjoy this. You're supposed to just live together for a while. Just try it out for a while. And God's word says here, Paul talking to the church of Thessalonica, he said, that's what the world is doing out there right now, but you should acquire your partner in sanctification and honor. It means that you hold them in very high esteem. You do nothing to bring them down from a proper relationship to Jesus Christ. You would suggest and offer nothing to them that would cause them to become a stumbling block to them where they could not walk uprightly before the Lord. And I want to encourage you parents begin to teach your children to look for good qualities in the other person, but put the Lord first always in their life and be active serving the Lord, busy serving the Lord, and if God has someone for them, He can bring them right to them, but they should wait until they're old enough to be able to court and fulfill the desire that they have in the heart. If I really love that person, then I should be getting prepared to take care of that person, or the two of us can be able, will be able to make a life together. That's why Paul's saying to them here that every one of you should know how to acquire his partner or possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not, and he gives contrast, not in the lust of concupiscence. Concupiscence is that continuing escalating of physical appetites. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. He said, now that's the way the Gentiles do it. He's saying there must be a difference in our conduct from the Gentiles. He says, Gentiles, do it differently from us. Now, we're Gentiles, but we're also children of Abraham now, by faith. We've been born in the family of God, and we're supposed to be a royal generation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
I hope you young people are listening to me. God has a perfect one for you. First of all, let me say, God may not want you to be married. Can you live with that? If you don't get married, Paul says you're better off because you don't have to please your husband or your wife. You just have to please the Lord. But if you do get married, make sure that you do it and acquire that partner in sanctification and honor. Don't let them destroy your testimony. Don't pull their testimony and witness down. Ask the Lord to show you the right one when you're ready to have the right one. You know, I really appreciate the fact that in Jesus' day, Jewish young men, when they would go and ask the woman if she'd marry, had to go back and submit to the father. The man who is ready now to get married has to come back and submit to his father, and his father says, now let's get the bride's home built, and until it's finished and I give my approval, you can't go pick her up and get married to her. How many of you know how far that would cut, how much that would cut today? If a young man comes back and says, Dad, I asked her to marry me, he says, good. Now, when I think you're ready to get married, I'll give you the okay. Until then, just cool your jets. How far do you think that would go? Why? Because we're doing it like the Gentiles did it. We don't know what real submission is. We're being told if you want some input or insight concerning these different problems, Go to your parents, but understand that they're coming from a different generation, a totally different viewpoint. But if you really want some answers, well, come to us as teachers or come to us as psychologists or come to us at the health clinics and we'll give you the real scoop. That's the implication that's made many times. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. Again, he says, I told you before, first of all, abstain from all kinds of sexual sins, and now abstain from greediness, getting gain through covetousness and trying to take advantage of a brother. And by the way, when he says brother here, the different commentators say it does not just mean somebody who else is in the Lord, it means anyone. Remember when Jesus said to the attorney concerning Love your neighbors yourself. He said, who's my neighbor? And when Jesus got through explaining who his neighbor was, he was saying, don't worry about who your neighbor is. You be the neighbor. You be the neighbor to that other person. He's saying here, in all your manner of living, do not go defraud your brother. Do not try to take advantage of them. You can, you can put that in, any, in, in the area of finances, in the area of their... Uh, personality or gossiping, whatever. Don't defraud your hurt, your brother in any way, in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. Now, you know, that's a good kicker to put in there. Because there are a lot of people that think, well, I haven't broken any laws, and they can't do anything to me about it. But God says every idle word we speak, every deed we perform, He sees it, it's written down, and He says, I want to tell you something, I'll see it, and I'll avenge that person avenge you for that person. I don't know about you, but I don't have any weapons that will allow me to fight God. Do you? Can you think of anything more futile than to try to resist God? Paul says, now when I tell you to avoid sexual sins, when I tell you not to defraud your brother, I want you to know ahead of time that if you do it, God is the avenger of, of that person that's been injured. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto what? Holiness. He therefore that despiseth 
despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now that word despise there means displace or reject or put aside. Let me say that again. That word despise there means re displace, reject, or put aside. He's now, I've told you these things, but he therefore that despises or displaces or rejects or puts aside what I just told you are not despising me, but you're despising God who has given to us his Holy Spirit. He said God is not only the avenger, but you're rejecting him when you reject what I'm telling you right now because this is from the Lord Jesus himself. Powerful truth. You know, that's why the scripture says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said those are the two greatest commandments. We're talking about upholding biblical standards when relating to other people. And he says biblical standards are to avoid all manner of sexual sin and to acquire your partner in sanctification and honor. And not to defraud your brother, not to get involved in concupiscence, and not to, to defraud your brother in any way. He says, because the Lord is the avenger, and if you set this teaching aside and reject it, displace it, or ignore it, you're ignoring what God has to say to you. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. He said it's not enough to love your brethren. Yes, I love them. But he says cause that love to continue to increase. Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, I know you love your brethren and you're, you're ahead in that, but do it more and more and more and more in the days ahead. Why? Because Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you what? That you have love one for another. He said, now don't set this aside, don't displace this. Now, and that you study. By the way, that word study there means to be ambitious, to pursue eagerly and aspire to. Does that sound like you in your job or in your business? To be ambitious, to pursue, to eagerly aspire to, that you study to be quiet, and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. And he says if you'll do these things, you'll end up, the end result will be that you'll have lack of nothing. You want to get rid of lack in your life? He says fulfill these things and you'll have lack of nothing. Why? Because my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. See, God gives us formulas here that will allow us to succeed as believers. The trouble is, some people say, God, you've promised all this to me. Forget how I act. Just do it here. Do your thing. Which is foolishness. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In like kind. In like amount. In like quantity. In like quality. This is a powerful portion of Scripture. The more I look at it, the more I realize that Paul is saying it is mandatory for believers, according to the Lord Jesus, it is mandatory for believers to walk in holiness and in love one toward another. To get rid of sin, get rid of the old ways, the old methods, the world's way, and to walk in holiness before Him so that the world can tell the difference. These are good things for you. And the answer is, if we don't want to do it, God says, I'm the avenger. 
and I'll take care of those that don't do it. Sooner or later, he says, he, he said, even an earthly father spanks his children. He said, spanks them betimes. And he says, that's what he does too. He chastens. He said, no child of his goes without chastening. The Lord knows exactly how to spank. And he doesn't want to spank. How many parents look forward to the opportunity to spank your children? Now, my honey, when I'm gone today, watch them real close. Take a video of them. If you catch anything at all, let me know when I get home. I'm just so eager to beat them again, you know. You love your children. That is the way you are. But the Lord says every child of his, he spanks. Because chastening for the moment does not seem joyous. But the end result is what he's looking for. It brings forth fruit unto holiness. Parents, I hope you'll take these biblical principles and instill them in your children to acquire their partners in holiness. None of this concupiscence, lust of the flesh, satisfying their own needs, you owe me, any of this stuff. That's not God. It's not God's way. God's ways are always the best ways.